All right. So this is a totally new format and a totally new project that um, I'm starting in collaboration with uh, a new friend and um, and professor of psychology, Greg Henriquez. Um, and it's kind of, this is going to be a philosophical conversation series. Um, and this specific conversation with Greg Henriquez is about the enlightenment gap. And we'll, we'll define for you guys what the enlightenment gap is, um, why we think it's important. Um, and maybe to start, I'll just say that in our conversations, we have sort of defined it as a double problem, you could say. A double problem that's that's spanned multiple centuries that has involved all the different academic disciplines and that is kind of like a, you could call it a maybe a meta problem. Um, and the two problems are the well-known, uh, I would say, the, the matter-mind relationship. What's the relationship between, between the material universe and our minds, our, our mental cognition? Um, this appears in Cartesian dualism, for example. You have the cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and that this separation between the world and pure thought, you could say. And you could even say that that notion of cogito ergo sum is underlying the scientific materialist universe of, of, of thought. Uh, and then the second problem being a problem of science and society relationship. We have a universe of scientific knowledge, which is centuries old now, but we also have social knowledge, which is not necessarily reducible to scientific knowledge. Well, some would say it's reducible to scientific knowledge, right? We might call that scientism, um, but there's there's scientific knowledge and there's also social knowledge. And and what it, what is that? What, what do we mean by social knowledge? What is its relationship with scientific knowledge? Perhaps the biggest division in the academic world, certainly I'm excited to get into this, is social constructivism, right? What do we mean by social constructivism? Um, surely some form of social constructivism is true, but to what extent? What, what do we mean by that? Um, you know, and what is the relationship between, say, rational knowledge, the idea of, 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 of rational knowledge, and you know, the conflicts and the existence of, of our social life, which is oftentimes irrational, which is oftentimes emotionally charged, you might call it the head and the heart. Um, and so that's kind of what we want to have a deep dive into. That's what we want to have a deep conversation about. Um, so on the one hand, the matter mind, on the other hand, the science society. And we think that this kind of structures on a meta level, a, a, a grand conflict that has spanned centuries now between the scientific universe, the modern universe, and whatever the rest, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the excesses that the scientific universe doesn't cover is. So with that being said, Greg, why don't you introduce yourself, introduce the, some of the work you've done on the, in, on what we're calling the enlightenment gap, and let, let's start talking about it. Amen, man. Well, Cadell, it's great to be here with you. Um, it's great to be here starting this journey with you. Uh, I think there are things in the air, uh, in the zeitgeist, as it were, uh, in this time between worlds, through Zach Stein's frame that he made famous. Um, and I think it's a, I'm really excited to dive into this thing called the Enlightenment Gap. Um, so this is actually, you know, a, every, a lot of people have stumbled on 
uh, or had obvious commentary. I mean, mind-body problem and modern versus postmodernist um, sensibilities are ubiquitous. So let's be clear that you know this is not uh, this is something that we're scholars, scientists, philosophers are very aware of. Um, I think that we're potentially in a position to talk about it in a newly productive way. That's what my hope is. Um, so my entry in, and I actually I coined the term enlightenment gap, and then I shared it with Cadell, and then he and I agreed that this is a very useful frame. Um, but I coined it in the context of writing a book uh, that I'm in the midst of called The Problem of Psychology and Its Solution. Um, that's my current obsession. Everybody that knows my work knows that I'm obsessed uh, uh, with the problem of psychology, both as a problem, I'm also obsessed with letting people know about it. Okay? Um, and what I mean by that is when you get physicists together, they're pretty consistent in their language concepts uh, that their referent in the world is matter and energy and how it changes through time. Uh, biologists are pretty clear, although they disagree on the fine-tuned elements of what life is, uh, they know that a bacteria cell is alive and that's different than a hydrogen molecule, uh, a water molecule, and that's not alive. And they, and their their biology is the science of life. And you can trail it up into ethology, into neuroscience. Um, and those disciplines, those natural science disciplines have pretty clear. I just, for the last maybe five seconds, I think your video froze, unfortunately. Yeah, there, there were some. Okay. Um, I just, yeah. just continue on. Yep. So uh, biologists know what life is. Uh, the point of it is when you get to psychology, okay, what our subject matter is, like literally just what the term refers to, there's been no consensus at the level of the referent of the term, okay? Does it mean human subjective experience? Uh, does it mean overt behavior? Uh, does it refer to animals uh, in general, a subset of animals, uh, just people? Uh, people, there's the system itself completely lacks a consensual agreement on the basics of the scientific enterprise. And this is why I'm very critical, although uh, you'll see that I'm anchored to a naturalist scientific worldview, although one that also emphasizes a kind, particular kind of spiritualism. Um, so I'm, I find that fascinating. Uh, and I think that if you recognize the problem of psychology, you realize that if it tries to be the science of the mind or whatever, you know, <laughs> mind and behavior, you realize that it's going to be right smack dab in the middle of the enlightenment gap if the enlightenment gap is referring to the joint problems of what's the, what is mind and matter and what is scientific knowledge relative to social knowledge. And so I see a very tight relation between uh, the enlightenment gap and what became the problem of psychology. Um, so I'll bring that. And I'm really excited working with Cadell because we have very, very, and, and exploring this because we both have different but very complementary views. So I'm embedded in the science of psychology, but I'm also a clinician. Uh, so I, I, I really became to this at how do you do therapy um, and encountered all of the different uh, beautiful models, but contradictory models, um, such that my experience was when they're done well, I can really honor that and see the value in that. Yet their language systems and assumptions about human nature are radically different. Um, I then shifted to the problem of psycho psychology as a scientist. Um, Cadell, your background, uh, you know, in anthropology, your knowledge of history in general, 
and your knowledge of psychoanalysis, your knowledge of global brain, evolutionary complexity. Uh, you know, I think we have real wonderful complementarity, and I really look forward to uh, riffing off of this and seeing uh, where it takes us. Totally. So, <clears throat> so let's 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 try and build on that. So you're coming from the perspective of a psychologist, and you're coming from the perspective of this problem of incoherence in the psychological literature and and basically the problem of incoherence in the psychological uh, approach to 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 human beings. Um, and say, I guess where where I situate myself is definitely as a student of anthropology, definitely mm -hmm. as a student of history. Um, I was always I was always interested the way I always saw science, because I, I started in anthropology, and the mm -hmm. way I always saw science was that science was a human activity. Mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes where when I when I read um, you know, and I was interested in physics. I, I was I was especially interested in physics, to be honest, like as a from an anthropological point of view. Mm -hmm. I, I, mean, I, I agree with the physicists when they kind of present physics as a, a special type of science. You know, I, I think I think it is. I, 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 don't, I, I think it is. And but at the same time, I always see physics from a human point of view. Right. So like the way I so the way I see it, let me this is the example I always give to when I try to try to describe the way I see physics uh -huh. is and it, it might actually be complementary with your with with your big historical model. So it's it's when I hear two physicists talking about or if I'm reading a physicist describe the Big Bang, for example, Okay. we have the physical phenomena in itself of the Big Bang. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But we also have the phenomenon of two conscious psyches talking about the beginning of time. Yes. And that is equally fascinating to me because not only did the universe have a beginning, but it produced entities, emergent complex entities, which are interested in beginnings. It's and unbelievable. So, and so to me, when we talk about the enlightenment gap, I'm just using this example because when we talk about the enlightenment gap as this gap between matter and mind and science and society, I'm using this example to capture to me what the gap is, which mm. is we can well, we can, which is mean we can well describe physical phenomena and so forth. What is, we could get consensus, say, on what yep. happened at the origin of time, maybe. Yep. Maybe we could get consensus on the chemical composition of our universe. We could get consensus on what is life, uh, autopoetic systems or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then we have the social level and the mental level where we are actually working things out amongst ourselves intersubjectively. Yes. And that to me requires, um, exactly what we're trying to do now in some sense which is to some have some type of complementary difference where we can work things out but we don't have the whole picture yet and and yeah. maybe there is you know maybe there isn't a whole picture i i don't know so what do you think of 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 
of that way of, of, of framing. Like you think, cause usually we think when we think of the big bang or if you're in a physics class, you're not mm-hmm. really thinking, at least to my, you know, in my experience, you're not really thinking about the intersubjective mental social dimension of right. what does it mean that, that yeah. we're talking about the beginning of time? Because that basically, to be fair, that brings us into philosophy, I think. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm so right. I believe, uh, and this is one of the great questions. I believe that the modern scientific enterprise, especially exemplified in physics, figured out a way, sort of, <laughs> to factor out human knowers and leave behind a map of the ontic, what I would call, my language is the ontic reality is the Big Bang in itself. So that's, I'll use the term ontic reality. So that's independent, that presumably our model sort of are like, well, that had that happened before us and it's independent of us talking about it at some level, okay? Um, now, the interesting thing here, okay, is there is this knowledge entanglement because 100, 200 years ago, no one knew about the Big Bang, right? Okay, we, we developed the model of the Big Bang based on our physical ontologies, meaning the theories that physics gave us, the emergence of the atomic theory of matter, okay, just matter, mechanics, and motion, then dropped into quantum mechanics at the subatomic level. General relativity gives us this idea about the relationship between mass and space-time. We start seeing the relationship of movement in mass and space-time. We get a map that things could be collapsed. Oh, if you back up time, they fall back into a, a single point, as it were. Um, and now we have an ontological map that maps the ontic reality. Okay, But we're also, so there's a couple of things that we're going to disentangle. One is, well, how can we differentiate the ontic reality from our ontology, okay, what I would call our common sense ontology, and I'm going to use that term meaning our claims about reality versus reality, okay? Those things are entangled somehow, and that's a fascinating question. And to get more to your direct point, but I wanted to make that point first, is then what is the real relationship between human knowers knowing in philosophy? and these physical theories to the extent that they can factor out the knower, which is basically the mentality of physicists as I hear them. We're just trying to, we're trying to create, and if you understand the modern system of science justification, it fundamentally is get the system into a quantifiable, empirically deductive place where your subjective biases are removed and start doing logical analyses that are quantified that then try to eliminate other explanations develop a, a robust, falsifiable, deductive element that then creates an inductive to just best explanation that is supposedly true independent of people. The periodic table of, of the atoms, the atomic theory. One of my great questions, I'd love to get your take on this, is would an unbelievably advanced you know, civilization that say visited us, an alien civilization, would they have the same basic atomic theory of matter that we would have? Or do they have a radically different uh, ontology. I, I love to. I, I love to wonder about that question. So, so for me, these issues of yes, there's the Big Bang. There's here humans are talking about the Big Bang. What is our model of the knower relative to the known across virtually every level of analysis? But most definitely, there's our physical theories. How do they map? How are they entwined and entangled, uh, or totally separate and yield some objective map of the ontic reality? That's a great question. To or to what extent can we say that? And then what is this fundamental relationship between this 
uh, evolution of complexity where now it's concerned with beginnings and telling the story of itself. Um, I think there's a lot of spiritual, uh, certainly spiritual fascination uh, that you that I have with a universe that wakes up and reflects on itself, at least. Uh, um, so I just throw a lot out there, but I try to rip off of what you were saying. I'll see what you pick up in relationship to that. Yeah. So let's, let's use, let's use some common phrases that sort of capture this weird relationship between our maps and, and the reality. Good. So like you might say that a naive scientific materialism mm -hmm. would say that their map is the territory mm -hmm. in some sense, like that there's not really a difference between our map and, and the territory. We're just, we're just, we're just developing a map which is covering an ontological field which is already there and right. just sort of, right. we're just describing it. We're, we're, just, right. we're describing right. it. We're map. discovering the map, right. Discovery describing at its fundamental so that anybody where they're going to say they're going to describe the reality, this theory That's, has to be the thing that makes so, Absolutely. And so in that way of seeing, then I think we would answer the question that I think we would basically have the idea that if we're mapping reality out there as it is in itself, then any other alien intelligence who had language and mathematical capacities would also be mapping that same reality and that, that we would be forming a common picture that's universal, independent of the intelligent species, which is doing it. Exactly. Oh. And like the classical example of this, this mapping of reality out there, I think you could take it back to Galileo with yep. his disagreement with the church, where mm -hmm. you have this, this idea that the church had the ideal that all bodies moved around us. And then right. Galileo says, look, I can observe and map that there are bodies that move around something that's not us. Yep. And that's true, independent of what you say about that. Completely. You could have your own map, but it's just a fiction. It's just a fantasy. It's a it's a myth, and yes. we want to and we want to destroy that myth, and we and, and we want to see what's true about reality. But 100%. then you have this. Then you have, I would say, the postmodern turn. And in the postmodern turn, you have this idea that the map is not the territory, like exactly. that. Science, like scientists are confusing their map for the territory, and I think the evidence they would give for that is like something like Thomas Kuhn's scientific paradigm shifts where you could have a map of what you think is reality and then there could be a historical event which totally changes your map and you're like, whoa, what I thought was reality is totally not reality at all. So my favorite example of that, which we can connect to the first example I was trying to give of, um, uh, of physics and the physicists mm -hmm. and the Big Bang is... Think about what we thought was the universe a hundred years ago, or say 150 years ago. Right. That's what I we thought. We thought there was one galaxy. Yep. We thought that space and time existed forever. Mm -hmm. Absolute space time. And and we thought that basically, like, we didn't have knowledge of other solar systems. Totally. So, and then you have, and we didn't know, so, but then we, then we realized, whoa, the universe is expanding. 
when the universe had an original point and everything came at once from this point and that actually there's hundreds of billions of galaxies and that we only have access to the observable universe and the universe itself could be much larger than our observations of anything and there could be trillions upon trillions upon trillions of other worlds that yes. and that's only in the last 120 years totally totally so, so that what yeah. how, how do we make sense of re the map and the territory with this this is enormously complicated so here's let me see if we can uh sync up on some language okay because language are our language is going to be so key on this okay so there's a critical realist uh the founder of critical realism is roy bashkar okay uh, he talked about the distinction between the intransitive reality versus our transitive beliefs about that reality. Okay, um, so there there is at least we can see that our beliefs about reality have been transitive, meaning that they're vulnerable and they transition over time. Okay, if we are realists to at least some degree, all right, we then can also have a conceptual placeholder that says that there's our beliefs about reality. And then there is something independent of that that is sort of the actual, real actual world, okay? That I would then, he refers to that as the intransitive. Uh, I would refer to that as the ontic reality, okay? Uh, now, so the, it's, which is admittedly, it's a conceptual placeholder that says, hey, uh, you know, wh whatever they knew 100 years ago, the Big Bang happened if the Big Bang is the ontic reality, okay? Um, so that's a... So if that jives with some, if, if, if you have language that you wanna sync up with that, um, but, and, and I'm also gonna use the term, I usually use the term common or common sense ontology. If I say common sense ontology, it means some of the beliefs that I have about reality, okay? Um, and, and it, other than the word ontology is a very, like metaphysics word ontology has lots of nuance to it and people use it uh, you know, uh, as being itself. Um, and so the, you know, certainly in the Heidegger sense, it becomes to me quite, um, interesting and fascinating, but also potentially confusing. Um, if I'm into a scientific theory frame, I'm, the science is developing an ontological set of claims. It has scientific epistemological methods for justifying those claims. And those claims are then seem to be the map of the reality, but they're also very fluid. And this fluid relationship is one of the very, very tricky uh, and complicated things. But to keep the categories, uh, that's the way I keep the categories in, uh, in my language. So when you say common sense ontology is your beliefs you have about reality, the weird thing to me with what's happened in science over the last 150 years, say, you know, specifically in physics with general relativity and quantum mechanics, I would say, but yep. also, with, but also with the Darwinian universe and also yep. with evolution of life, I would say that our common sense ontology has been uh, in the way I think about common sense ontology, the, our common sense ontology has been disrupted massively. Completely. Because what we thought reality was is so different from the scientific point of view. And the, the, the amount of scientific training that you need to really understand the weirdness of yes. general relativity 
and the weirdness of quantum mechanics and the weirdness of evolution is enormous totally. and probably out of the scope and probably out of the, to be honest, maybe even out of the deep interest of maybe most people to, re I mean, to really get into the technical details. Yeah. Because if you're going to get into the technical deep, because because so, then what I'm saying, what I think is, if your common sense ontology is the beliefs that you have built up through studying science, through being a professor of psychology, and through really going deeply into what is science, and really going mm -hmm. deeply into what is the mind, right? Then don't we have a conflict between most people who? have a common sense ontology in the traditional sense of the term, I would say in like more um, the sense of the term of Heidegger's being in the world. Mm -hmm. Like with Heidegger, he's trying to like, let's introduce, introduce for those who don't know Martin Heidegger, who's a 20th century philosopher who was not against science, but he was historicizing science, I would say. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. saying that basically that all of our ontologies um, are getting in the way of understanding the temporality of our being in the world. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to bring us to common sense of our, what is your day-to-day -day 24 hours of your right. life? And, and like, for example, for like someone like Krishnamurti, who would bring mm -hmm. another person who's more of a, a, a spiritual philosopher who would say that, pay attention to the moment of your being in the of right now pay attention so you could say that for example the quantum physicist or the general relativist he's paying attention he, mm -hmm. he might be paying very close attention but he's paying attention to realities which are very distant from the common sense so how do we bring right. together this, this 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 problem great yeah no um and uh, and that's why it's so important for us to sync up on language. Okay, so I, the common sense in this, what was inside then the science, so I have, you have your science hat on. So I didn't mean common sense like my neighbors. Okay, um, so I meant sort of common sense meaning, oh, the term ontology refers to the belief scientists have about reality. Okay, and, which then is different from the ontic reality itself. This is a essential, this is, and by common sense, I really mean just that there's a common scientific realism that most scientists adopt. And that is their scientific enterprise builds theories that somehow create relatively increasingly accurate maps of reality. Okay, that's a, that I would say is that's the standard science, simple scientific realism is that we built the periodic table of the elements to create a empirically grounded taxonomy of the kinds of atoms there are in the world and that's a lot more accurate than earth, air, wind, and fire. That's an old, outdated ontology. And now we okay. have a, an updated ontology of atoms. So and then if I put on, so then if I put on my, my, my Kuhnian scientific mm -hmm. paradigms hat, if I put right. on that hat, just as an example, sure, I would say that that common sense scientific realism doesn't make sense because mm -hmm. you can have paradigms. It's not that you're making incremental progress to the truth of reality. It's that you can make you can make discoveries which totally change the whole field. So, for example, right. um, we thought particles were 
these these um what we thought we thought particles were like these physical things when really mm-hmm. you look closely and they disappear into waves for example right exactly or you thought space and time were absolute but actually they're relativistic and so everything is different now or yes. so so how do we account so how can and then then we have this gap the enlightenment gap between if you have this and here's the question i would have for you is in this enlightenment gap you have the scientific way of seeing the world which mm-hmm. has its use clearly right. has right. made so much progress with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we have so much better view of where we are in the universe we think than we right. did in the past mm-hmm. but then you still have this gap between science and society right which i was right. trying to bring with the heidegger and the being in the world right right which is and that is um those perspectives uh are absolutely crucial in my estimation and they are trying to highlight something they're trying to highlight multiple things they're trying to highlight the scientific paradigm shift okay um you can gain access to to a profound grounding in the world through your own being Okay, so there's a phenomenological way to be grounded in the world, okay, which is different, and I would think Heidegger would acknowledge this, this is a different kind of knowing and being than scientific knowledge is knowing and being. So I, I'm now, and, and they can be complementary, but they're, but they're different in the sense that I, um, from a phenomenological perspective, at a being level, I am, there's a collapse between my ontology and my experience of being so that I have access to my essence right here. There's an isness in my phenomenology, okay? That is foundational in the sense that the intersection between what I know and my experience is as clean and pristine in this moment, as long as it makes no additional claims, other than just it is what it is in and of itself, right? I can, it, the my experience of this grape soda even if it might not even be grape soda in there, my experience of the grape soda, okay, is an embodiment of a particular kind of phenomenological reality um, that has its own particular onto, ontological, ontic re, uh, reality relation, right? I mean, it is, uh, my friend Rob Scott calls this isness, all right, from the subjective phenomenological perspective, okay? Um, so that's a, and to me, that's a very, very important frame, but that's not at all the frame of science. In fact, science, to get back to your point about like Galileo, there was what Galileo was saying in relationship to the church. There was also what Galileo was saying in relationship uh, to say uh, Aristotle and his metaphysics. Okay. And the way in which, what justified knowing, um, what justified knowing in, in Aristotle's metaphysics is if, if we all shared a similar conception and we looked at that conception and we interacted it and it had conformity and there was group conformity, then it, that really it's sort of the polis had group conformity around an entity that was reality, a shared sense of what is true that you could pragmatically interact with, okay? One of the things that Galileo and the, the shift uh, from an Earth-centric to a heliocentric perspective engendered was the awareness that that in and of itself is not adequate. Because everybody agrees that their perceptual experience is that we're sitting on a relatively centered earth. The sun comes up and rises around us, okay? And then it sets. So the earth has got to be in the center. We have that as a shared sense. But no, it turns out that you rotate this perspective and we can. you have to get out of your head, out of the qualia, 
and into the quantifiable objective evaluation. So uh, my point here is, is that I think the one of the big shifts that happens in the Enlightenment is a fundamental shift in epistemology from phenomenological views and social constructive views to attempt to try to eliminate that, to quantify that, to develop measurement, and really to then essentially extract subjectivity and try to yield an objective view. That's, a, that's essentially the epistemological move. Of course, to do that scientifically is essentially completely antithetical in some ways to everyday human living, because what else do you and I care about <laughs> than our embodied being, uh, you know, the relationships that we have, the taste of grape soda, um, the qualities, the qualia qualities uh, that actually for each of us from the inside, from the interior epistemological view, uh, make life and, and consciousness and make existence. Right. So I guess what I, I guess, I guess what I would say is, I mean, do you think, or maybe a question, do you accept Galileo's turn on Aristotle and do you think it, it, we can leave it as it is? No. I, I, well, I think that it's a very powerful move, um, but it's a I think about science as a particular kind of language game, okay, in a Wittgensteinian way. And my term for this is it's a particular kind of justification system, okay? A justification system is a linguistic system that says, hey, here's a frame, all right, and then here's actually a particular epistemology. It adopts a third-person objectivist epistemology. Um, and my argument is that actually what, and I like Ken Wilber's quadrants, especially the distinction between interior phenomenology and exterior behavior. And, and I agree with him, and I think I can dive it even deeper, that what science did is they created an objectivist, behaviorist grammar and epistemology to describe the structures and processes of change in the universe uh, in a particular useful way that carries truth value. Because for me, I, 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 I agree. I agree with that. Um, I agree. So let, let's, let's maybe, let's maybe start with this transition that you started to introduce us to between Aristotle, Galileo, and then the modern, postmodern situation. Good, okay. It seems like what Aristotle's trying to do with this conceptual conformity mm -hmm. is create what I would call, or what, what Slavoj Žižek calls, a type of big other. Okay. And that is basically a universe of shared meaning, yep. a universe of consistent knowledge, which, uh, which, which, basically, maybe create. You could say it creates a shared mythos. Yes. Something like that. And okay. there's a lot of value in that. But obviously, there's a way in which that move kind of takes away the real of the subject itself in its own way, because mm -hmm. you're you're privileging the shared mythos mm -hmm. over the individual being in the world. Right, okay. Whereas with Galileo, you also kind of destroy the subject mm -hmm. because you're saying, 
let's get you out of your head and let's get you into some objective reality. Nice. Mm -hmm. But I think in that move, I think the, the, the psychoanalytic point of view is that that is its own type of fantasy. Now, where mm -hmm. psychoanalysis deviates from the postmodern critique mm -hmm. is that they don't think fantasy is just nothing. Mm. Like fantasy, <laughs> like by saying, you know, by saying the objective view of reality or the scientific view of reality as a fantasy is not to reduce it to just another worldview. Mm -hmm. it, the question would be, how is it that fantasy and our symbol systems of science allow us to, for example, go to the moon? Right. Or, for example, to build robots. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, because no other symbol system and no other imaginary fantasies allow us to do that. So it's maybe it's imaginary. Maybe it's just a story. But it's something different than, for example, an ancient animism. Right. Or it's somehow different than Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, the counter to that, or not the counter to that, but also an additional possibility because of that way of thinking, mm -hmm. is that you can also think about religions as a type of fantasy. Mm -hmm. Like Richard Dawkins says, the God delusion. Mm -hmm. As having its own type of utility, maybe the Christianity doesn't get us to the moon, mm -hmm. but it might allow for the formation of a patriarchal society, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. you know, father, yeah. son, Holy Spirit. This right. is like a metaphysical way of representing the family, say. Yep. For example, now, when you have that, when you have that conception, to me, what I'm trying to get at with the contemporary philosophical horizon is, can we stop putting images and and stories over the real of the subject like i would say aristotle did and mm -hmm. what galileo did mm -hmm. and how would we start to approach that because yeah. for me let me just reverse and this is this is a this is a, a for the for those of you who who watch the videos on on youtube on my channel of slavoj zizek's less than nothing this is how i start those lecture series is that when Galileo said, Eper si muove, and yet it moves, he's talking about that the planets revolve around Jupiter, independent of what the Catholic Church says. Right. Now, Slavoj Žižek says that there's a truth of the subject which moves independent of what the behaviorist says, mm -hmm. or the scientist says. Mm -hmm. That no matter how much you try to put a scientific image on the subject and you're, there's a movement in the subject, which you're missing because you're not willing to look at the subject. Yes. As it is. So here, like to give before I pass it on to you, there's a nice distinction Lacan gives in relationship to Piaget and Freud. Mm -hmm. So, Lacan says that when Piaget studies the child, he's trying to understand the child through already given scientific concepts. Yep. 
Whereas Freud is trying to understand the child as the child is in themselves and he develops his theories from that. So for example, the best example would be the way the child theorizes, I have a penis or I don't have a penis. That is something that the child themselves identify. And I remember when I did that, but it's not, it's not, but it's not politically correct, you could say, in the scientific mm-hmm. universe. Right. So what do you think about this distinction? Yeah, no, I think it's a very useful distinction. So here's where my mind was going uh, and the way in which uh, um, a couple of years ago, I, I got pretty into and utilized the distinction between pathos, mythos, and logos. Okay. Um, and I aligned them between sort of a more, uh, you know, epistemology grounded in the phenomenological subject, which is the pathic position, okay? The mythos is the intersubjectively socially constructed version uh, of the storied of the community, of what we get together and ask ourselves what we are in the universe that has, that orients us towards what might be and what can be, what ought to be, okay? And then the logos, which then gets exemplified you know, philosophers and logic tried to do that, but then gets uh, basically captured by the scientific methodology to try to delineate with as much logical accuracy precision, you know, what it can be empirically seen in the light of day. Um, and I remember Alexander Bard was telling me, yes, that's the, that is the day of logos, uh, the mythos of dawn when the community gets together and everybody shares, and then the pathos of night, which is then you become, you know, Tantra, Sutra, you become the fundamental subjectively oriented drives, uh, you know, that reside. Um, and I totally believe, you know, when I was talking about the most real thing from my subjective experience is my behind the eyes experience of being. That's where reality, ontology, epistemology just collapse and simply isness. Okay. Um, and so from subjective pathos, that is the primary epistemology for me. Okay. Uh, meaning that's a, that carries uh, that carries the day from that vantage point, and and objective science basically, like you were talking about, has the danger of especially. I mean, behaviors did this explicitly, it explicitly denied that the subject even exists uh, from the perspective. It was so committed to both physical reductionism in terms of the mech- Newtonian, at least of uh, John Watson was a Newtonian mechanistic billiard ball view of neural reflexes and so committed to the objectivist view of epistemology that that consciousness as a concept wasn't even allowed to be discussed. That's how ridiculous that was, okay? Um, And then the mythos fundamentally, you have to, we are in, science is a human activity. We're all engaged in it. We have to decide that it's good. We have to decide on what it feeds in relationship to the social structure, who pays for it, who pays for what, And then, of course, the overarching system is what is our laws? What are our values? What do we actually, why does any of it matter uh, at the level of ought uh, and collective ought and might and can? uh, And we clearly need. So so from my vantage point, we need an intersubjective construction of myth. We need a space for the isolated first person pathic um, perspective. There is the you know, objective angle on reality. We can talk about, you know, what's the relationship between scientific ontology and the ontic reality. That's what we were getting there. Um, And that's how I would sort of map that. And as far as I can tell, those perspectives of logos, mythos, 
uh, and pathos are different fundamental commitments to different kinds of rhetoric and language game. Um, I would also say ultimately there's ethics uh, that is another angle on that, but those three, uh, I'll just leave for there and see if those things resonate uh, with you in relation. Well, I'm also very much aligned with these distinctions and we should maybe note that um, this, these distinctions are of mythos, pathos, and logos are, are inspired by the work of a philosopher named Alexander Bard. Um, and I'm totally aligned with, with, these, with these distinctions and that you're saying that subje subjective pathos should be a primary in epistemology because to me, subjective pathos in epistemology is it's, it's actively, it's not, it's not, it's not only just, I mean, well, it's actively repressed in the scientific universe. Yes. It's also, I would argue, actively repressed in the postmodern universe. That's so it. I agree me, with that. So to and and that to me, I would say is the reason for a lot of the gender trouble. Mm. Mm -hmm. You can't come up with a theory of gender with unless you have first a theory of subjective pathos, in mm -hmm. my view. So, mm -hmm. so if we have this idea, like if you say, for example, when we started our conversation a few moments ago about Aristotle maybe created a collective mythos, mm -hmm. then. Galileo tried to ground a logos, but both were kind of ignoring the subjective pathos and maybe were even defenses, I would say, against subjective pathos. Because in my experience of subjective pathos, it's very difficult to bring it into logos and to, and to share it in a collective mythos. Yes. So then there's this, then there's this, this brings us back to this question you had of when we think about scientific epistemology, and I think this is a Heideggerian question, which you said is, why does any of it matter at all? And I think it's actually something that Jordan Peterson actually talks about, about materialism is mm -hmm. from matter to why does it matter? You know, so he plays on this, totally. this notion. So I and I think this is a nice little reversal. I like this notion when you were describing the, the flip from Aristotle to Galileo of you have to flip your point of view. You have to, but I think mm -hmm. I think with this subjective pathos, you also have to flip your point of view because I agree. because for example, if we go back to the example I was giving at the beginning about the two physicists thinking about the origin of time, mm -hmm. I would say from my from my knowledge of psychoanalysis that the subject has a pathos for the origin. Mm, yeah. the, subject, the subject has a pathos for figuring out the truth of the origin. And of yeah. course that manifests in psychoanalysis with mm -hmm. understanding the origin of myself, understanding right. the origin of myself in the womb, understanding the origin of myself as an infant, my mother, my, child, my, my, my father, my family members, the most intimate relationships, and that my knowledge as a social subject, as an intersubjective being, mm -hmm. is informed by this origin. Yes. So that to me is the subjective pathos, and also that you can figure out your subjective pathos mm -hmm. by knowing deeper your origin. Mm -hmm. So then that's the mm -hmm. reason why mm -hmm. we are interested in the origin. Fascinating. So, so then 
how, and this is where I, this is where me and the frontier of my thinking, I struggle to figure out how do I then take this subjective path out and then make sense again from a new eyes mm -hmm. of the scientific universe. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the scientific, the common sense ontology of the scientific universe you were describing of general relativity and quantum mechanics and the evolution, which takes us radically far away from our being in the world, mm -hmm. then brings us back to this pathos of the scientific mind, which was brave and bold enough to go into these territories which took them very far away from their being in the world and into totally different worlds. Mm -hmm. So and I would say that that pathos is universal. That mm -hmm. we all that we all have this pathos to 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 go out into the farther reaches and to figure out something that no, no one ever figured out before. Mm -hmm. And it's that adventurous spirit yeah, no, it's beautiful. So, uh, yeah, so that's a that, there's a lot there. Um, so for me, uh, I'm I'm both a scientist and a humanist. Okay, and those things are not the same thing. Uh, they come from my tradition in the academy, which undoubtedly is uh, situated uh, and in the sciences and humanities and the two branches uh, of uh, CP Snow and all of that. Uh, but for me, then the humanities really do represent sort of the, uh, the the elements of pathos and mythos. And what I would say for me, you know, they connect to sort of the the goodness and beauty and subjective and collective intersubjective, okay? Um, and I completely agree. One thing I would say about Aristotle, his he was so into logic that he certainly moves into the logos a lot. Uh, but certainly if we put the, uh, the Christian church as being the, uh, the dominant, mythos of Western Europe. We can then see the Christian church as a mythos uh, that then it spawned to try to gain more accuracy of the natural world. It spawned natural philosophy, but then that natural philosophy came and started to, you know, completely challenge by delineated a totally different logos, a totally different perspective. It totally it then challenged uh, the frame. And so we had then a scientific logos, okay? that then fractured off of our mythos. And I think that this is what Jordan Peterson certainly is, is you know, noting. Um, and I think it was what Nietzsche noted. I think Jordan Peterson is fascinated about Nietzsche noticing what does the death of God mean in relation, right? And I think your point, and I think we both agree with this, is that both of those are titanic struggles, scientific logos, what fundamentally is the mythos, but both of them underappreciate or, or underrepresent the potential pathos and the pathic relation between these two domains. And I believe that a part of the enlightenment gap or a coherent synthetic philosophy is going to be able to cre create, ideally have available, give honor to appropriately in relation, the pathic, mythic and logo uh, frames. Uh, and if we have complementarity between those, and I believe that we can get better complementarity, absolutely, uh, between those. And I'll, the last thing I'll say, and then is part of my journey as a psychological scientist and a therapist. Okay, so I am both. Oh, what is what is my scientific objective view of the universe? 
that allows me from a behavioral perspective to see the people in front of me as unfolding patterns of behavior on the one hand, okay? And what's an ideographic, real mattering relationship that I have with myself, with a client, in the real world with the struggles and the pain and the suffering and the hopes and the shit uh, of, of being there and being there and having that matter. Uh, and for me, those are definitely different language games. My task was to say, while they're different language games, they can be a lot more coherently enriched uh, and interwoven uh, with than is, uh, than is currently offered to me. And that was part of my passion and drive. Okay. So let me make let me make one distinction which I think is useful for our conversations going forward, which is I think that science tries to be logos. Mm -hmm. I think the humanities try to be mythos in terms of story, emphasis mm -hmm. on story. So like the old saying, the universe isn't made out of atoms, it's made out of stories. Yes. Good. This idea. So you have mm -hmm. science logos saying universe made out of atoms. You have mm -hmm. mythos story saying Universe is made out of stories we tell. So even Adam mm -hmm. is a story. Yep. Then I would say pathos is not captured by either the sciences or the humanities yet. Good. I would say that path to me, when I think about deeply pathos, mm -hmm. I think it takes us into something that I like calling alien. Mm. So, so that's what I, and, and then I would say that because why do I say that? I say that why does pathos take us into something alien? First, I'm saying it because I'm trying to communicate that pathos takes us into something different and something other than we know at the moment. Mm -hmm. okay. And that pathos, if you connect with pathos, it takes you into places which challenge both your scientific view of the world and your own human story of the world. Okay. And that if you go into that, it's like a feedback loop, which retroactively changes both. Is and mm -hmm. this is now this is I'm just trying to explore this idea. Yeah. I'm just trying because it's and here the way I'm making sense of this triad we're we're exploring here of logos, mythos, and and pathos mm -hmm. is that with the funny is with dialectical logic basically so that bring that brings for me for people watching that brings for me to Hegel who was a dialectician of history who was studying the logical movement of spirit and with the notion of Hegel's triad and triadic thinking it's you have two opposite elements which are unified by a third and that third element takes you into a different field. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have logos and mythos, which we have CP Snow, the two cultures. We all know the two cultures. Then you have, I'm saying, there might be a third element of this pathos, which is underlying both. Mm -hmm. The pathos under, because the scientists have a pathos and the humanists have a pathos. And that if you fully go into the pathos, you change your view on both the mythos and the logos. Mm. What do you, so maybe, um, maybe, just because, maybe, because we have maybe five minutes to close up. So maybe either okay. we could we could save that idea for a second yeah. podcast because I think mm -hmm. it deserves its own podcast. I agree. So then maybe then maybe to close maybe 
let's maybe you could give a summary of what you think we've achieved so far in our start the first conversation and it set us set our viewers up for the future conversations to come amen amen well i think that we are getting a handle on where the problem is okay so right we delineated i think we're complete agreement and i think that i'd like this to be well known kind of like the problem of psychology i think if we have a shared understanding of the problems that's a very helpful frame okay so the enlightenment modernity it's a mindset, it's a sensibility, it's a cultural code. It's got a number of elements, okay? But I will argue very clearly that it's got a philosophical element and a scientific element. And it's most clearly represented on the one hand by the philosophical element from Hume into Kant, okay? And then from Galileo into Newton. And you get, a, and you, and then we can talk about Hegel and you know a lot more about him, but I'm stuck. <laughs> you taught me, think about me as being stuck um, and being handed a psychologist, uh, sort of the Kantian philosophy that separates uh, the, so the sort of phenomena from the nomina and, and has a category of mind that then allows you to understand it. And you have a Newton methodology, and then you have a matter and world and an observer that's doing that. And oh, there you go. Okay. But when I then came into that tradition and then was asked to be an American psychologist who also then worked with individuals in pathic scenarios, all right, I found very clearly that there was an explosion. Uh, that, that there are these fundamental problems. You look around, the, oh, mind-matter problem, mind-body problem. There's a modern, postmodern problem. Oh, my God. Um, I think as we, we wove into it, we immediately are then seeing now as we get to this and our language systems start to sync up, we're like, okay, yeah, there's a logos, there's a mythos, there's a pathos. This allows a much more complicated and more holistic. It sets the stage for a potential synthesis. I look forward to dialoguing with you about Hegel because some of the insights that I had uh, perhaps set me up to capture Hegel from a different perspective, or at least connect to him from a different perspective. Uh, so to me, I love the, the groundwork and the idea that we can uh, bump off on this and start uh, in deeper exploration of pathos, mythos, and logos sounds great to me. Fantastic. So I think, I think that's a good place to end. And I'll just end by saying that in our next conversation, I would like us to go deeper into the way you were starting to describe this foundational training that we receive in psychology and in science in general of Hume and Kant and Galileo and Newton. These are titanic figures. These are figures who colored our, we use all their language today, right? Mm -hmm. We use words like space and time. We use words like, like a priori concepts and these types of things. And Next time we can go maybe into how these thinkers frame science, how these thinkers structured our logos, mm -hmm. the consequences for our shared mythos, because it, it destroyed our shared mythos. Totally. And that maybe we're, we didn't even have a proper way of seeing this pathos dimension. So, Amen to that. So then, then let's 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 end there i think that that was an incredibly i really enjoyed that discussion i think we may have made some some interesting interesting well distant was enjoyable so then let's 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 i had a lot of pathic fun energy. energy with it <laughs> yeah and so i thank you so much for joining and so for everyone who's just watching the end now that was with myself and greg henriquez we're doing a series on the enlightenment gap and we uh we will see you in the next broadcast look out for it Fantastic. Thanks so much.